and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast and it's number 173 and it's been a bit of a confusing week too. More on that in a moment. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter and I admit it doesn't necessarily take a lot to confuse me but this is the week that time goes weird. No, not alternate universes and dimensions and warp speed but when North America goes out of sync for a couple of weeks because they spring forward earlier than they used to. So when you set up interviews, the times are all screwed up. And worse still, I know it's coming, and it still messes me up. And that's almost as bad as the fact that it's Mother's Day in the UK in a couple of weeks, and yet it isn't in the US and Canada. On a personal note this week, I watched the outdoor NHL game, and it was enjoyable, although from the UK I couldn't tune in to listen on WGR in Buffalo and hear Rick Generet's play-by-play. Definitely a legend, and this is his last year, sadly. But baseball is back, well, almost, with spring training starting this week. Of course, the global news is still dominated by Ukraine, and another week has gone by with no end in sight. I don't really want to go too deeply into the situation, but what I will say is that there are a lot of brave people in Ukraine. And I will say in Russia too, I was genuinely moved by the bravery of the TV producer who protested against the war during the news. She deserves to be president of Russia. So I should let you know who's on the podcast this week, and it's another three-interview week, as we have conversations with Steve Gidman, president of Fortress Technology, Inc., WePack UK's technical development manager, Keith Gator, and Stop Foodborne Illness CEO, Mitzi Baum. And of course, we also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland at StoneX. And that means it's time to take a look at the news from the past seven days over on DairyReporter.com. And it was another pretty decent week with lots going on. A new leakage valve from GEA boosts the safety of ESL production. A new Cargill sugar reduction solution with Stevia is now available. And we had an article on how components of milk might help the battle against COVID. We had more financials with Hochdorf and Savoncia. Pack Expo East opens next week, and Perkin Elmer launched a new FTIR platform for quality and safety testing of dairy foods. Canada introduced a new support program for dairy processors. Organic Valley announced a program to reach carbon neutrality without carbon offsets. And UK dairy production costs are set to soar to more than 40 pence per litre. There may be trouble brewing in Ireland as the ICMSA says no to a potential Irish milk production cap. And the latest in milk alternative sources is apricot kernels from Taiwan. I uploaded the last of the ice cream show videos this week. Danone Oceania became a B Corp. And you can read all of these and many more at DairyReporter.com. And that means that we're off and running with the first of this week's guests. And we will start with Fortress Technology, which has custom-engineered a twin-aperture metal detector and dual-lane check wear for one of the world's top dairy companies to help have waste. To tell us all about it is President of Fortress Technology, Steve Gidman. 
Well, I guess the obvious first question is if you could tell me a bit about Fortress technology. Sure, yeah. We started Fortress in 1996. I started it in my basement, actually. It's a classic story. We concentrated on metal detection technology, which was uh, my background in the food industry, and built Fortress around very high performance, easy to use products targeted at the major food companies and became reasonably successful at that. Overnight success takes uh, 25 years, but we got there in the first 10 years and it's been uh, a, a good ride since. We now have manufacturing sites in four countries, Brazil, UK, New Zealand and Canada, but 300 employees across the globe. So three years ago, just before COVID hit, we had already had a very friendly relationship with a company called Spark in the UK that did weighing, x-ray, and some image systems. We'd worked together on a lot of projects. And 2019, we completed a takeover of Spark because it was just such a good fit for us all. And we already knew each other. We worked well together, had the same sort of concept of things we wanted to do. And the technology was very compatible. And even the market's quite compatible. So Spark rolled into Fortress, even though that, you know, travel restrictions, et cetera, thank God for Teams and the rest of the platforms that we have today that uh, we were able to work on redeveloping those products, bringing them up to date electronically. Our skill is basically you know, high-end electronics and digital signal processing is a forte of Fortress. And so we were able to sort of bring a lot of that knowledge to the Spark product line, which had some very, very good and innovative mechanical systems and easy to clean, easy to take apart, some very unique, especially on a check wire side, some very unique products and they've meshed really well. Part of what uh, our focus today is, is how we've managed to take some of their wonderful modular systems, et cetera, and combine that with metal detection technology into a small, fast, easy to use footprint. So do you sell all around the world? Yeah, yeah, we do. We have representation in about 50 countries, except Russia as of now. <laughs> but yeah, basically anywhere where there's reasonable supermarket level sales or restaurant sales, then the food industry follows and we follow the food industry and we have to be there. And what products do you have that are relevant for the dairy industry? Basically everything we do is tweaked for all the major kind of food groups, but uh, dairy would be, you know, obviously metal detection is our big one. Check weighing is also big in the finished product side. And of course, in many products that foil lids, et cetera, X-ray would be applicable, as well as our image label inspection and label confirmation systems as well. And so could you tell me a bit about the new check wire? We've done an awful lot in combining not just metal detection and check wing, which has been around for quite some time of people combining those two systems. Our approach was a little different in just the basic combination in that the metal detector part of that combination has always taken the big compromise in performance to be able to fit the footprint that was demanded by food industry running out of space in every factory and older factories especially, but even newer factories, they seem to forget that they're gonna need some space for all this equipment. But typically, historically, the metal detector is being compromised because the reduction in space reduced its performance. It just wasn't given the room. And it always took the hit. You can't really do that with a checkware because it just can't accept you need a certain space for a checkware. 
Uh, you can't compromise that. The metal detector was always on the compromise list. So our approach was different. We think food safety sort of is the number one thing in, in, in what we do, and therefore that can't be compromised. So we just have to find a better way, a better approach to the technology, sharing the space between the two, the checkware metal detection, and allowing us to not have a compromise system, but still have a reasonably small footprint with lots of flexibility. And so our systems also, one of the things is you can run them independently, completely. So they can run as one or they can run completely separate. So if you aren't using the checkware, if there's an issue somewhere, the metal detector is completely independently operable and vice versa. And the next step came along is what we're seeing a lot in all food industries, but especially in dairy, is the process end can produce an awful lot of product. And it's the packaging end that is typically the restriction. And they can't just put more lines in because there's space. You know, a line takes three or four meters between center lines before you're going to get operators in, et cetera. So what's been happening is the packaging systems have started to become multi-lane. So they're packaging two or three and sometimes four lanes of product in the same footprint as what used to be one production lane. Now the process can push all that product without taking up actually much more room than newer packaging machines are putting on multiple products at the same time. That's obviously a tremendous improvement for the factory in terms of efficiency. And then we usually take over from there. We're coming from a completed package, but now you've got four lanes of product. So what do you do with that? Well, the approach that was being taken was, a well, one big fat metal detector that's got to cover all these products. Performance is severely hurt on the metal detector because it's the aperture is now really large. And when you've got a lot of products all at the same time, one product is contaminated, you reject four or whatever, how many lanes you've got. So it's not a very efficient system. And then even on check wing, to get side-by-side centers, you really have to have a very wide system. We have a great solution in that we have multi-lane metal detection. So we can, with very little separation between lane centers, we have individual metal detector cells, if you like. We've already been doing that for quite a number of years. And using that at the front end of this system, we're able to do individual inspection of the two, three, four packs side by side. So in effect, we got four production lines coming without hardly increasing the width of the system and not at all the footprint lengthwise. In fact, it's a bit smaller. And with the Spark technology that was brought to the table, they have a modular check weighing system where you can virtually put check side by side and they slide onto a rack. The space requirement widthwise is tremendously small. It's extremely neat and tidy package. So you don't have to, all of a sudden, you're coming out of a packaging line and, and you, you know, you've got just over a meter and four lanes of product and you hit a checkware system that's now got to take two meters and somehow you got to get the product separated and operators can't get by and so forth. So this solution saves tremendous amount of space. It's extremely flexible. You can move the lane centers on the checkware and we're not compromising the metal detection at all because we got individual lanes of metal detection so it's as good as it would have been on a single uh, product on a single lane but now you've got basically two three four lanes of product and we're looking at eight lanes of product for applications coming up forward 
So it's a very good solution. It's not simple in terms of our side, but our expertise is also designing electronics and the interface to all those to be as easy as possible to use. So that's one of our core beliefs at Fortress is we look after the complication. The customer, the operator, has got to be very simple. So he doesn't have to be you know, an engineer to figure out how to run this machine. He should walk up, understand what he's got to do, and be very clear and easy to access every part of that machine. Are there any other advantages to the new technology other than size when you compare it to what's already on the market? Yeah, I think because of the, the approach, we're also not compromising performance at all. So the performance is significantly better if you're talking multi-lane because the metal detection isn't compromised at all. The check wing isn't compromised whatsoever. So the performance is better, the ease of use, the technology and designs that historically Spark have used, and we've inherited and enhanced those, is all those conveyor systems that are featured within that footprint, you multiple lanes of conveyors and multiple sections between metal detector, check weighing, rejects, et cetera. All of those are pop-off, toolless removal, take the whole conveyor, basically the fair bed, the roller, the belt all comes off in the operator's hand, small footprint, liftable, out you come, any maintenance, belt repair, belt replacement, and the frames are all self-draining designed, so sanitation is very easy don't have cracks and crevices to look after. So really, we've tried to tick all the boxes that we know that, especially in dairy, that are critical. You said it's easy to install with existing lines. Yeah, well, because of its space, it makes it less onerous for plant engineering to find bigger footprints and move the line down downstream, which is usually can't be done. And we do a lot of the product handling tailoring to taking from the packaging machine We'll do lane S curves, whatever is required, depending on the output of their packaging machine, to process it through our system and hand it off to the next step, which is usually going to case packing. So we customize the design. Again, it becomes complicated and more troublesome for our folks, but it makes a drop-in solution for the plant. And you mentioned about how you do all of the behind the scenes stuff. So how easy is it for operators to use? I mean, do they need to go and undergo training? There's always some training, but basically if they've already been working with metal detection and check wearing, which they most likely have, unless they're new to the food industry, they'll understand it quite quickly. And like I said, the interface, one of our expertise has always been to make sure that engineers don't design the interface because then it becomes like a rocket ship or you know a spacecraft to, to control. Our interfaces are always designed by basically marketing and people that we use to say, how would you use this machine? So when you walk up, you don't need a manual, right? That's how it should work. And we're sort of getting that with our phones now, but early computers, when you look at, you know, when we're running DOS computers, you needed a science degree to figure out how to get to where you wanted to be. And people don't need that. So it should be like that, where you walk up and you see a button and you press it and it's the right one. And we work very, very hard to make sure that works. And I assume that that's customizable depending on the application. Yeah, it has to be. Every customer has their own way of working, even the way the terminology they use, languages, of course, it has to be global, but each company has their own language in many cases, their own acronyms for things, and we have to incorporate that. 
and what they think is the priority when the operator comes in. What's he working with most? Is he working with the checkware, which is normally the case because he has to change tolerances or he has to monitor there or change settings more often than on the detector. But it should be very easy to migrate between lanes and which device he's working with. Even though it's a new system, I guess it's never completely finished. I imagine you're constantly having to do upgrades and whatever. Yeah, absolutely. The processor platform is extremely good, extremely modern, and it allows all of that. It's got so much potential that we can add, subtract, we can change things on the fly, we can update software over an Ethernet cable. It really adds flexibility that when I started in this business, uh, yeah, that was a dream. Yeah, exactly. You you can do everything from your office now instead of having to exactly. travel yeah. the world. Yeah. And what about obviously sustainability, especially in dairy with carbon footprints and everything is huge right now. Does it do anything in terms of reduction of waste? Yeah, there's a couple of things that I think we bring to that in a fairly exceptional way. First of all, all of our electronics are extremely efficient. So our power usage for the amount of work that we're doing per line is probably a quarter of most of our competitors. And that's done through smart motor controls, it's done through smarter power supplies and just high efficiency electronics. Nothing gets hot, doesn't consume excess power. So we take a lot of care in reducing how much power consumption we use. That may not be a big deal to a packaging machine next door that's using tons of power, but we do reduce power quite a bit. Even air or pneumatic usage, extremely low, because that's, again, a very expensive product to produce. It's usually taking some carbon energy to make the compressed air. We take very good care that we're not losing any compressed air, and in some cases, we don't use air at all. But on the packaging and product side, I think you know when you bring in reliability, and accuracy, especially on the checkware side, and you're feeding that back to the actual fill mechanism upstream, that you are automatically reducing waste. So once you start to see a trend that we're underweights, underweights, okay, well, then you tell the machine, fix the underweights, and you do that in a very clear and concise way, the underweights go away. So if you're doing your job right, there's very, very few need to reject checkware rejects. It's almost instantaneously that we can get back and turn the machine back to where it needs to be and keep those weights where the the, the consumer's being promised he's getting this weight. All the product that's not rejected is an improvement of waste. The metal detector side also, false rejects are a big problem with metal detectors, our accuracy. The individual lanes, rather than dumping four products at once or five products at once, we're taking out individual pack per lane and the accuracy and reduction in false rejects that we have with our signal processing means that you're only taking out products that have a contaminant and you're only taking usually one product over the life of that product is quite substantial. Is it already being used in any plants right now? Yeah, a number of dairy plants we've done. We've seen this trend to sort of multi-lane systems, especially in the past couple of years. I think our solution is pretty unique and as such it's starting to snowball so we're seeing applications come more and more towards us and we have a really robust solution that's quite easily tailorable to whatever their footprint is we've done going around corners before we get to our system and we've handled all of that you know depending on the plant layout all right what's the reaction been like so far from people that are using it yeah 
Yeah, really good. Really good, actually. The operators like it because it's easy. It's easy to live with. It's easy to clean. It's easy to get to a belt and take a belt out and change it, etc. Those are the things that need to be typically addressed. And we make it easy. Yeah, ease of use is a huge one. And just not constantly asking for attention. So if we run, we run well, we run consistent. That's the kind of thing that the operators really feel good about. And that makes the plant management happy too. We're not wasting products and wasting time of operators. It's a win-win. Next, it's to a new innovation that will also help the planet. And that is paper packaging for butter in the UK that can be recycled curbside. WePack UK has developed it, and we chatted with the company's technical development manager, Keith Gator. I wonder if you can tell me a bit about WePack. Yeah, so WePack are a um, family-owned business. Family originally comes from Finland, and is part of a, a multinational conglomerate. WePack and its sister packaging manufacturing company, WinPack, based in North America. We manufacture and specialize in high-barrier packaging, mostly focused on the fresh food market and also in medical packaging as well. So based across Europe, we've uh, got good experience in extruded films, high barrier extruded films and printed to converted packaging. WePack UK is one of those manufacturing sites, is a conversion site focusing mostly on the UK meat and dairy market. So what products do you have for dairy? So in dairy at the moment, WePack UK services a lot of the uh, hard cheese market. So we supply flexible films for the block cheese market, sliced cheese market, grated cheese. And we do a lot in both retail and branded customers and also service the food service side of the business as well. All right. And I guess today we're talking about a, a new recyclable paper wrap for butter. What's the current problem with packaging for butter? So the current problem at the moment with butter is that it's a multi-layer composite comprising of three different materials. So historically, the main specification has been aluminium, PE and paper all laminated together and then printed, which is great because it does give a great degree of product protection and good barrier to both light and oxygen. However, your consumer can't really do anything with it once it's been used and you've taken your butter out of the pack and it generally has to go into landfill. So we have tasked ourselves really to target this and, and think about, well, how can we make it more sustainable? Um, and coupled with WePack's target to get to carbon zero by 2025, this is an ideal opportunity to utilise our new investment we've got in, in Welshpool at WePack UK. And by using our Green Choice product range, we can um, apply some really new technologies to tackle this composite problem and deliver a paper-based structure that delivers both the barrier and the machine performance that butter packers need. And how did you approach that when you were developing the new packaging? So in terms of product development, I always like to start with the requirements of the product and work backwards rather than try and take a technology platform and launch it because uh, you need to understand what the product needs. And in terms of butter, good oxygen barrier requirement is needed in order to hit that 80 days plus shelf life in some instances. You've got to be stiff enough and have enough deadfall to go through a butter wrap machine. And that's important, otherwise you lose your block shape. And you've also got to think about what the consumer is going to be doing with it after it's been used. And the target for us was to deliver a curbside recyclable specification rather than a return to store. This is a lot more accessible for consumers, certainly in the UK, and we feel is is the same for Europe as well. So to start with those and then work backwards and then combine with the new technologies that we've got, bring it all together. And we've got a lovely specification that seems to be working very well. 
obviously you were designing this from the aspect of sustainability, but you also have to meet or even exceed the specs of existing packaging in terms of, as you were mentioning, the oxygen and light temperature. How did you test it? Yeah, so this is this is a good one. Um, again, already being prevalent in the dairy market, then a lot of our customers, direct customers, are um, in the cheese market and also have a company in creameries and uh, vertical supply chains. So it was very easy to get hold of um, the right people to be talking about this as a concept. Working with our customers, then we could sort to design this and, and work up. So once, again, understanding the end requirements with them and start to put a testing plan in place for our prototypes that we've started to come up with. So for us, we can use our extensive lab facilities we've got in group and combine that with access to our customers' packaging machines where we can run pilot trials on prototypes and prove that out to generate sort of the start of the shelf life data that we need to do to launch a product. I just had visions of you running out and having to buy all kinds of uh, butter every every once in a while. <laughs> well, it's a funny story actually around that one. I, um, I did do a similar program when we created the first prototypes. One of the things that is important for any paper specifications, and in particular in, in oily products, is the fat spotting that can occur through the contact layer and go into the, the printed paper. So uh, what I did is I took some cut samples of uh, the prototypes and put them in a wedge of butter and left it in my butter dish at home in the summer just to really um, see what happened after a couple of weeks. Got a few tellings off at home for having odd samples of paper <laughs> stuck in the butter dish. But, uh, you know, you do what you've got to do in uh, new product development. And what about for printing is it good for being able to print on yeah paper is an excellent substrate for printing on it's really absorbent and and holds ink very well obviously there's a change versus the standard and again a lot of the structures on the market have an aluminium surface to them so there is a an association between shiny and metallic with butter wrap that is something that will have to change with this specification and adaption of designs may be needed to optimize the look on shelf, but hopefully that it shouldn't be a barrier to getting the right sustainable product out onto shelf. And for companies that are interested in this product and want to switch to it, is it easy for them to switch over or do they have to do any adjustments to their equipment? The main point to note on this is that this is a drop in product versus current specification. This was running successfully on packing lines within seconds of it going on versus the current specification. So, yeah, it is an accessible specification. It delivers on the physical properties that we talked about earlier. Having that deadfold to cope with the butter block machine is important. And we've got a a structure here that meets both the packing process requirements and the product requirements as well. And are there any other benefits for the companies that would switch to it, to the packaging? We know we're talking about what the consumer benefits are, having an option to recycle that at curbside, but also for the dairy company who's making the butter and packing it, then this is a good opportunity to really push the carbon footprint reduction that the industry is looking for and being able to deliver a significant reduction here. Um, We're talking 68% carbon footprint reduction versus the current aluminium specification it's a really good way to get the packaging on the route of carbon reduction alongside the good effort that the dairy industry is already doing to uh, make an impact is it something that's cost effective for companies to use so with regards to current cost base in the market then you know people have their agreements with what they're paying for the current specifications what we don't want to do at WePack is to inhibit innovation and we certainly don't want to put any blockers on sustainability you know so we want to price it 
fairly and make sure it's accessible to the market to give minimal impact to switching over to the specification. And I guess a lot of companies as well are looking to more sustainable products and more sustainable packaging in order to boost their own uh, sustainability targets. So it would help with that, I guess. Yeah, well, it should be a mutual win-win for everyone, really. The butter manufacturer can, can be happy that they're making a big impact on their packaging carbon impact. For Weepack, it's great for us. We're utilizing new technologies, using new investment, and we're really pushing our green choice product portfolio by delivering a specification which is both renewable and recyclable. And for the consumer as well, it's one of those pieces of packaging that doesn't go into the general waste bin. It now goes into the curbside recycling bin. So again, it's a, it's a good story all around. And I guess it's also good for the manufacturers of the butter in order to be able to convey the fact that it is recyclable. It might even entice people to switch products if it's something that's recyclable compared to something that isn't. Yeah, we've seen increasing trends that consumers are getting more and more eco-conscious about their packaging. They're making active decisions to engage and, and buy from those brands and retailers that are making those moves. So yeah, hopefully it will incentivize those purchases and get consumers really involved with the decisions they make on packaging and, and therefore what actions they take with their packaging once they've used it. So again, it's all about the narrative of making sure our consumers know and have the capability to recycle the packaging that is necessary for the product. Other than the fact that the companies with the butter will get the credit and you won't, even though you're the ones that developed it. That's fine by me. (laughs) (laughs) But one thing that you mentioned there is um, communicating it to the consumers. How is that going to be just the responsibility of the producer of the product to get that message across to the consumer that it's fully recyclable? Yeah, it will be labeled on pack, I'm sure. We want to get the consumers looking at the pack. And most consumers do look at the labeling on there to ensure they go put it in the right bin. There's also the benefit as well. There's extra claims that can be made. You know, the bulk of the material is from renewable resources. So again, that's another claim that can be made on pack. And would it apply to things like, I know there really aren't that many plant-based butter products out there, but would it apply to plant-based products as well? Yeah, it certainly would. Again, this is proven for use in the butters and fats market. So, you know, let's not limit it to just butter, but, you know, Plenty of other similar products exist out there. And the advent of plant-based products has been seen across all dairy categories, I see. So, yeah, it's one that should complement both standard and new products uh, alike. Is it getting a lot of interest from companies? We've had a lot of inquiries on the back of this. So, yeah, it's great. You know, we're already talking with some of our uh, key customers on this already. But again, the activity and the press and and activities like this podcast will hopefully uh, generate even more impact so we can uh, change the world of one butter wrap at a time. And will that just be UK or is that going to be globally? Well, at the moment, as I say, we've focused on working with our UK customers and keeping the developments close at hand. But again, we've got opportunity to roll this out across Weepack and Wimpack's sister sites. So um, it is something that we could offer on a uh, regional level as well. Following on from a recent recall of Infant Formula, we had a conversation about Chronobacter Sakazaki, which is not on the nationally notifiable disease list in the US, but which should be according to the organization Stop Foodborne Illness. To tell us more is the organization's CEO, Mitzi Baum. So I guess the first question is if you could tell me a little bit about STOP. 
Well, Stop Foodborne Illness is a national public health nonprofit. We were founded by mothers and fathers whose children were injured due to severe foodborne disease. And when I say injured, they were either hospitalized or they lost their lives due to something as essential as eating. Stop Foodborne Illness works with individuals and families whose loved ones have been impacted by foodborne disease. The nationally notifiable disease list, uh, what's that? Well, it's a surveillance system for public health to identify case counts of illness and diseases from reporting districts across the country. And the list gets updated on an annual basis uh, with specific criteria. And this list does vary from state to state. Okay, so it's, so it's not consistent across the U.S.? It isn't. With the current outbreak that has been associated with the powdered infant formula, the only state in the United States that reports Coronabacter Sakazaki is Minnesota. Why are there those discrepancies? Well, it's the United States and every state has a tendency to choose what they feel is relevant for them. So what kind of diseases would be on that list in general? So there's infectious diseases and non-infectious diseases. Stop foodborne illness is focused on the foodborne illnesses. Salmonellosis is on the list. E. coli 0157H7 infection, as well as botulism are on the list. Non-infectious diseases such as cancer, rabies, carbon monoxide poisoning, lead poisoning, and then other infectious diseases like measles, chickenpox, and of course, COVID is on the list as well. And so what would the reason be for not having Coronabacter on that list? You know, I don't know, Jim. I can only surmise that Coronabacter Sakazaki infections are considered to be rare, only about four to six reported cases annually. And so the pathogen perhaps hasn't passed the test of the criteria. However, if you review the mortality rates for Coronabacter, In 2014, the Journal of the American Medical Association published that mortality rates associated with Coronabacter Sakazaki are as high as 80%. And that alone should be justification for Coronabacter Sakazaki to be on the list. And you would also think that the more information that there is out there, the better that you could respond to outbreaks when they happen. Absolutely. And part of the nationally notifiable diseases list provides the collection of that data so epidemiologists can identify when there's a cluster or an outbreak and they can begin to you know, identify the source. And of course, that way we can initiate a recall as quickly as possible and remove potentially hazardous products from your grocery shelves. We've had this recent outbreak. Is there any other way of accessing the data on the diseases that aren't on that list from other sources? Well, it's really difficult because this is really the only national list. As I shared before, our states collect and report different information, but this is the only national list. And in this case, there's a need to expedite the rule. It's time to put Coronabacter Sakazaki on the list because children continue to die. Is there opposition to putting it on the list or is it just the fact that, as you mentioned before, that it's just low incidence? Yeah, I don't believe there's opposition. I think because it's considered to be rare and doesn't meet 
whatever the annual specifications are, it has not made the list. But again, Stop Foodborne Illness believes that there should be an exception to the rule and expedite putting Cronobacter Sakazaki on the list. And if it were on the list, what would that mean for the ability to respond to outbreaks or even prevent and limit them? Well, it's a surveillance tool. So it would identify a potential issue early. And, you know, we already have monitoring for Listeria monocytogenes, which also impacts the health of infants and mothers as well. So we're already providing surveillance on that type of bacteria. So adding Cronobacter would just help to elevate the awareness of potential illnesses and death due to this particular bacteria that's known to be sourced through powdered infant formula. Is that the only source of um, C. Sakazaki? No, it lives in the environment, but for some reason, the dry powder and infant formula has tendency to be a transmission vehicle for it. Obviously, there's been a recent outbreak. Have there been many in the past and have there been fatalities in the past? There have been other fatalities in the past. Specifically, in 1998, there was an outbreak and twins both consumed powdered infant formula. And unfortunately, both of the twins died due to ingesting Cronobacter Sakazaki. And this was 1998. Here we are over 20 years later, and we haven't solved this issue. And that's why Stop Foodborne Illness has called for Cronobacter Sakazaki to be put on the nationally notifiable diseases list. We need to put a stop to this and identify it as something, although rare, but fatal. And as you mentioned before, it's got a very high rate of if you catch it or if you get infected with it, then the odds aren't that great. That's right. It's an up to 80% mortality rate. And if you compare it to other childhood diseases like childhood leukemia, there's a 90% rate of survival. Whereas when we're talking about Cronobacter Sakazaki, there's only a 20% rate of survival. You sent a letter. Who was that addressed to? Yeah, Stop Foodborne Illness sent a letter to both the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Dr. Walensky, and Dr. Califf, the commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration in the United States, calling on them to put Cronobacter Sakazaki on the nationally notifiable diseases list and expedite that due to the ongoing issues with deaths associated with Cronobacter Sakazaki and deaths associated with the most vulnerable population. And those are infants. Those are babies that are typically less than two months old. And are there any other sort of groups and individuals or medical associations kind of supporting you on this? Well, there's been some conversation within other consumer advocacy groups that are focused on food safety. We didn't reach out to them for support. We knew that this was something that needed to happen and happen quickly. And so we have called on FDA and CDC to act urgently. We hope our colleagues that support consumer safety will follow suit. Have you had any reaction to the letter yet? We haven't had any reaction yet. I think everybody understands, certainly the commissioner and the director 
at the CDC and FDA understand that this is an urgent situation and FDA is working through their investigation. So I believe it's on everyone's radar. We are just calling for swift action. And so what else are you able to do to address this? Well, we'll continue to put our messages out. We have a webpage on our website, stopfoodborneillness.org, where you can find information about Chronobacter Sakazaki, what it is. Uh, You can learn more about the recall and other information pertaining to Chronobacter Sakazaki. Also, for those parents that may have a child that has been impacted by this recall or anyone that's been impacted by severe foodborne disease, we have a navigational map on our website that was created by people who have experienced severe foodborne disease or a loved one has and provides them step-by-step information about what to expect as their loved one goes through the odyssey of severe foodborne disease, including identifying what's making them sick, what may happen in the hospital. And then of course, once released from the hospital, things don't go right back to normal. So what to expect there? There's really nothing else like it on the internet to provide that type of support. Our constituent advocates who work along with Stop Foodborne Illness and share their stories are advocating for this change as well and support the work that we do to provide safe food for all consumers. And I guess it's not just Cronobacter that you deal with. You must have an awful lot of other uh, issues throughout the year, unfortunately. It's true. Stop Foodborne Illness has been working with a coalition uh, with regard to salmonella in poultry and working with other consumer advocacy groups and industry and academics to call on the USDA Food Safety Inspection Service to have a product standard. So the serotypes of salmonella that can cause human illness are not in the chicken when they're packaged for commerce. So we've been working with this group for um, almost two years. We also have been working on recall modernization with a multifaceted group as well calling on FDA and USDA to collaborate and provide consistent messages with regard to recalls to consumers. So make sure that the information that they put out is easy for consumers to understand and act upon. Do you work with industry at all in in order to help industry move forward on some of these things? We absolutely do. They're part of our salmonella work. They're part of the recall modernization work. And we also have a program called the Alliance to Stop Foodborne Illness, which we work with industry and our constituent advocates to help develop or further their internal food safety culture, which we believe impacts the safety of the food. If folks understand that their behaviors have a consequence and that can lead to illness and death of consumers. And this is food that they are probably feeding to their own families to understand that the culture within the four walls of their manufacturing plant or slaughter plant or wherever the grocery store, it has consequences. We educate them through sharing the stories of our constituent advocates. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I appreciate having the opportunity to talk about the work that we're currently doing All of it really impacts the consumer. So we're really singularly focused on providing a voice for them. 
And now it's time to hear about the latest from the dairy markets and this week's GDT from Stonex's Charlie Highland. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Jim. Um, well, the dairy markets uh, in Europe and, and around the world, for that matter, uh, continue to be extremely volatile, uh, as they have been uh, from the beginning of the uh, the issues in, in Ukraine. Um, and, and it still seems to be a market very much driven by sentiment. Um, we have moved up quite considerably in the last uh, week or two um, on most products uh, and you know, I think a lot of the, the drive there was really around concerns about milk collections. Um, you know, looking at Europe specifically, there's been significant concerns around uh, fertilizer costs and availability and feed costs and availability, all of which have been leading a lot of uh, market participants to the conclusion that we're going to continue to have major challenges in terms of uh, milk collections uh, for the rest of this season and, and possibly into next um, so that's really been driving prices up. And, and yes, there's been a lot of discussion around the fact that prices are getting to such high levels now that we will see some demand destruction. But short term, the demand still seems to be reasonably um, strong. So um, as a result, we've had really big moves in price. And the the first sign of, of weakness basically in the markets has been really the GDT um, of yesterday. Um, and that came out, it would really surprise the market uh, being down actually in terms of prices. We're down uh, 0.9% on average across the index. And, you know, uh, the market was expecting increases of somewhere between 4 and possibly up to 5%. Uh, like if we take whole milk powder, for example, the, the futures before the, the, the auction were pointing to an increase of about 5%. But actually whole milk during the event was actually dropped by 2.1%. So really a big change compared to where expectations were. And this is now starting to see the first signs of weakness uh, spill over into uh, the different markets around the world. Um, Europe has been trading down on the futures market this morning, over 2% for butter. Um, little less than that, but you know, 1.5% plus for, for skim milk powder. And it's the first sign of weakness we've seen, as I said, in several in several weeks. Still, I don't think the market is convinced that we're out of the, the woods here yet. I still think the, the picture remains quite firm. Uh, we don't have any clear um, insight into when the supply issues will be resolved. Um, there Again, there is con- increasing expectations that, that GDT yesterday was the first sign that demand destruction is really going to happen at these very high prices because people just simply can't afford to keep paying uh, these levels. So, so we'll see. It continues to be a really choppy market driven largely by sentiment. And it's uh, where we're waiting for it's going to take quite a while for some firm statistics to come true um, over the coming weeks and months to give us a better idea of, of what things really are, how kind of the supply and demand is really developing. But right now, uh, yes, we're seeing some weakness today. Um, I think a lot of the market is relieved by that. But the, the general mood, sentiment and uh, data continues to point to a pretty tight market, which should uh, continue to be, um, even if it comes down off these high, very high levels, it should continue to be supported at these high prices in the short term. Thanks, Charlie. Talk to you next week. StoneX provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it for another podcast. Next week, among other things, we'll be talking about human milk oligosaccharides. 
and I'm not sure what else yet. The forecast here is for glorious sunshine this weekend, which I will believe when I see it. We also had the Aurora Borealis, or the Northern Lights in Scotland last week, quite far south into the country. But, of course, here it was cloudy. I have seen it once when it made its way as far south as Nova Scotia in Canada, but it could hardly have been described as spectacular. Anyway, I hope wherever in the world you are that you have a great week. Take care and stay safe. And, as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.